Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Every opportunity that comes your way, my experience is never think of it as. Um, Do I want to do this project or that project? It's it's more people I know in the industry. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to writer and producer Sean Pye. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley, and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they used to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health, and lots more. As a writer, Sean has worked on numerous panel shows. He's written material for Nevermind the Buzzcocks, They Think It's All Over, Friday Night with Jonathan Ross, Have I Got News For You, Would I Lie To You, and loads more. In the early days, he worked on the Armstrong and Miller show, then the infamous 11 o'clock show. He's also worked as one of the head writers on 8 Out of 10 Cats alongside Jimmy Carr and Frankie Boyle, and is also a writer on Frankie Boyle's New World Order, The Reluctant Landlord, and loads more. Sean's also worked as a comedian. In terms of acting, he's most well known for playing the role of Greg in Extras. In addition, Sean co-created the animated cult sketch comedy Monkey Dust. He also co-created the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret, starring David Cross, Sharon Horgan, Will Arnett. Most recently, Sean created and wrote the BAFTA-winning There She Goes with his wife, Sarah Crawford, which centers around his own life and his experiences of his daughter, who has a chromosomal disorder. It stars David Tennant and Jesse Hines. So this is a great one. So, you know, if you're if you're a writer, aspiring writer, you know, if you're just interested in, I guess, the, the comedy industry in, in general, from Ricky Gervais' anecdotes to just so much experience of having worked in this industry, Sean definitely delivers the goods. And as always, if you do like this episode, if you're enjoying Balancing Acts, the series, then uh, just give us a five-star rating that would be much appreciated and a, and a lovely glowing review for the guests not for me i don't i don't need don't need the uh, the applause uh you know that's not what i'm in the game for is it but anyway yeah that would be very much appreciated if you want to sign up to my newsletter it's steve whiteley w-h-i-t-e-l-e-y.co where you can be kept up to date with podcast shenanigans and uh other things that i may be up to comedy-ish you know related i'm not going to sort of tell you what i'm up to on a day-to-day basis it's not going to be a a blog on my 
boring existence. Um, I mean, it can do, you know, if there is, if there's a demand for that kind of thing, I'm happy, I'm happy to pivot, but for now it's just going to be, yeah, work related stuff. So without further ado, over to Sean. So how have you found, uh, this whole, uh, apocalyptic period? Awful. Just awful. Just, um, just awful <laughs> it's been uh from, from every perspective i mean work i've <clears throat> i've had various stuff i can do because you know we're in a position where we can work from home and yeah so that's been all right but uh no with the family and uh not i love my family don't worry um but <laughs> being at home with um with with them all it's the same for everyone it's just yeah, been intense uh, intense and uh you know i just want it to end uh yeah. the, the pandemic to end i don't want to end it all myself it's not that <laughs> degree oh, yeah yeah um but i just want uh, i just want everything to start again and uh, to be able to go to the pub and telly seems to have it's not ground to a halt but there's a lot of people um waiting for things to happen so it's fairly dead at the minute i would say yeah from what i gather it is that the one thing that you've been able to do or people have been able to do is write and develop, but then that has now created a backlog in terms of development because everyone's been doing that and shows haven't been getting made. This is what I heard, uh, which is that brilliantly, lots of people have taken the time to write because that's something you can do. Um, but I've heard that, you know, there's a two year backlog to read scripts now. So on the one hand for all writers, but young writers and uh, or, aspiring writers it's you know good that they've had time to do some stuff but um yeah you're gonna have, you're gonna have to be prepared for a long wait while the while the backlog's cleared because they haven't been able to make anything that's the other problem it's not even like um they've got loads of scripts to look for uh, through they've got to make all the programs they haven't been able to make they've got to make yeah um, and so it's it's not even a, ba- a backlog in 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 an intray it's a backlog of work that people have got to get through yeah um so yeah i mean i'm looking at stuff that i've got to do you know they're already saying it'll be you know two years before we get around to making this it's crazy isn't it um and it's just you know and you know and it, it's the knock-on effects of everything it's like actors have suddenly got a massive backlog of things to do so it's it's not even like as soon as the pandemic is lifted all of these people you know they've everyone's got a huge backlog to do and that includes crew and it's it's yeah so it's great that people are writing but yeah be prepared for the long haul i'm afraid yeah for sure so just just uh rewind in terms of you getting your start in the industry was was uh the armstrong and miller show the first program that you worked no. on as a writer no, um, I got into telly through contacts, um, which is probably still the case, but less of the case these days. But I, uh, a friend of mine was going out with a very famous uh, TV producer called Harry Thompson, who invented Have I Got News For You and various things. Um, and he was making a show called The 11 O'Clock Show, and he wanted new writers. Um, and he was very good with bringing through new writers, just people that, you know, sent in submissions, but also people he met in the pub because he was going out with their mate. So he said, why don't you come for a tryout writing thing? I was working as a journalist at the time. I just went from there really, you know, it's just, it just, it, it, I did well enough at every stage to, to move on. And then I started doing Armstrong and Miller was a bit later when I was a little bit more established, they were asking for 
sketch submissions. So um, that's where I got to know Xander. And um, that was the 11 o'clock show mainly. That was my starting point along with, uh, you know, Sasha and Ricky and people. And yeah, how did you find that experience? Because I'd um, had on the podcast recently Neil Webster, who was also oh, <laughs> yeah, who also worked on that show. How, how did how did you find that experience? Was it quite shambolic? That's where I met Neil. Uh, yeah. But he was he was on the grown up table. He was with Peter Holmes and Ben Cordell and Charlie and Charlie Brooker, I think. And yeah, they were on the big table. They were the main writers, and then they right. Were sort of the lesser writers like me. So I was in awe of Neil and still am in many respects. Um, but we were, they were doing the sort of more set piece things and working with Sasha. And then we were just writing these horrible knob gags for Ian Lee and people to say, uh, Daisy to say at the top. <laughs> so uh, we were at the bottom of the food chain there. So uh, yeah, that, that was in the days where I'd sort of, I'd take a deep breath and go and talk to Neil about if I needed it. <laughs> right he's such a lovely man he's such a lovely yeah man. he's great he's great it was shambolic it, it, it was to, to be honest it was utterly utterly shambolic and 95 percent of it was crap and um 95 the crap bits i was responsible for lots of them but it was, a, <laughs> it, was a, it was a learning curve you know you've got to get you've got to sort of you know you know not everyone's comes to this fully formed and a genius like you know chris morris the rest of us have got to take our blows and, you know, read the reviews and <laughs> hear, an, hear, an, hear an audience react without a silence. <laughs> something that you thought was funny. You know, you, it's all about, you, all about toughening up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and so you were a journalist before. I know you were also a um, a comedy critic, stand-up critic. Was that was that then or did that was that separate? Did that follow on That's from you writing and TV? No, that was – I worked for the Evening Standards yeah. briefly. It was weird. My sister worked on the Evening Standard and she they needed a comedy critic at short notice. And because right. I was doing circuit, I was going to comedy clubs a lot. So I knew that it was a weird position to be in. I was a sort of, I was a stand-up, um, a not particularly good stand-up, but I was a stand-up and also I was doing the critique. Um, so that was quite weird, really, for me. I didn't do it for that long because it... Was that, was that before you were writing for TV? That's before. That was, that was before. Uh, did you ever have to do reviews on contemporaries? And if so, was that ever? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. And um, I tended to, th- th- this is why I was a shit critic, because I just wouldn't ever criticise anyone, because it was like, <laughs> well, honestly, it was like, you know, even if someone had died on their ass, it was like, well, you know, so did I. So who am I? <laughs> so, so my critiques were, it was just puff pieces, really. It was, right. It was, it was, <laughs> really um and so the evening standard got wind of this really and um amicably we parted ways but uh yeah i the one terrible thing i did was i thought a nice thing i had a really bad habit of sort of saying oh they do a really good joke this but you'll love this person you did a really good joke and i put right one of their jokes in the reviews and obviously that's awful if you're a stand-up because it's like i'm just stealing their material and blowing the and a couple of them took me to one side and said will you stop fucking doing that because <laughs> people are shouting the punchlines they read your shit review so um no that was an odd experience and not one that i would ever i, I don't really like critiquing at all <laughs> it's it's uh i'll do it in my own head but so when you got into writing for tv did you was your end goal to then eventually start writing your own shows or was it more of a case of like the opportunity arose and you're just going to see where it went? Absolutely. Honestly, hand on heart. I just never wanted to go back to a normal job. 
ever. What, what was your normal job prior to? I, I worked as a legal journalist uh, on a magazine called The Lawyer, which is a sort of commercial legal thing. Um, right. It wasn't where I just had ended up there. That's just what I was doing. But I had yeah. office jobs for quite a long time before that. I worked in other magazines and stuff and i hated it uh not that there's anything wrong with being a legal journalist it just wasn't for me mm. um and uh so i got this chance to go and write jokes for a living and ask around and be in this incredibly exciting uh atmosphere with lots of other you know the 11 o'clock show was shit but it was you were with lots of at the similar stage of their career writers who've gone on to be brilliant writers and you know we were all various so peter and ben and neil are the obvious ones but charlie brooker was there and charlie skelton all these sort of names um and it was an incredibly exciting atmosphere to be in and the 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 general life around it the pub life and the just being in the studio and just in the green rooms and getting hammered i mean it was I won't lie, it was brilliant. Um, and we were earning shit. It wasn't the money, it wasn't dreams of anything else. It was just I don't want to go back to um working in an office a, a normal office, um, you know, where you have your own mug and you have to be there at nine in the morning, you know. Half mm. the half the point about being a comedy writer was that you were supposed to be there at ten and you turned up at half ten because that was cool. <laughs> and nobody, you know, it was it sounds sad, but it was uh it, it was liberating. Uh, and then the more I did, the more successful I became, the less and less I wanted to go ever to go back. So from the 11 o'clock show, the next thing I really did of note was Monkey Dust with Harry. Um, and that was the thing that I think made my, you know, people started to take me seriously. Um, it, developed quite, it developed quite a cult following. Yeah, I mean, I was doing the things all over as well, and some other panelly shows with Harry, and they were brilliant. They were again, it was like the 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 crack and the sort of horrible word banter, but the just the creativity in those rooms um, was just amazing. There were some such funny people in there, and um, you know, the, not necessarily translating onto the screen, but just those writing rooms are the best writing rooms I've ever been in, and Monkey Dust as well, just because it was so. It, it was just no holds barred go wherever you like say whatever you want to say you know properly just liberating experience um and i just never Did you think that wouldn't be possible to, to have an experience like that i've been thinking about day? that a lot since uh you invited me on the podcast i was thinking i wonder if this question comes up i think it i don't think you could do it like it was back then and i think there's good reasons why maybe uh the the atmosphere in writing rooms these days is less sort of harsh and um less i mean it was just rude back then not rude as in sexually rude it was rude as in people were just so rude to each other uh, <laughs> in a comedic way hmm. um but it was just it was like eye opening it was like people can treat each other like this at work but with a respect there was a respect there but it was just it it was just a free for all and i think that led to a sort of idea that writing rooms back then were horrible hostile unwelcoming place i mean the first thing that one of my best friends now uh said to me i walked into a writing room for the first time the first day and i said hello i'm sean and he said to me uh, as long as you're funny and you don't cost me any money i couldn't give one fuck who you are and that was his <laughs> way of saying hello and I've told that story to a couple of, I've met some young writers and I've sort of said that as a sort of, oh, that was my first day at work. And they've sort of looked a bit shocked. And I was like, no, it was sort of funny. It was quite, 
it was it's funny for somebody to say that to you as yours rather than oh hello welcome but I think that led to an idea that those rooms were very unwelcoming for um new writers and I think it's good that these days um you still have that level of there is still a lot of huge amount of creativity but I think some of that sort of probably horrible sort of very white male I have to say um sort of atmosphere has gone I think for young writers listening to this then it's it's much much more uh there's a much more gradual incline into getting into writing rooms now I think um from my experience of you know working at various places over the last six or seven years I would say um you know there's much more emphasis on you know making sure that every part of the writing room is is very comfortable in what they're doing and contributing Mm -hmm. and you know finding new voices all that sort of stuff which is absolutely essential um but i'm not gonna lie back when i started it was brilliant being in those writing rooms yeah Yeah. it was fun i can imagine well it's just a a different time then wasn't it you just sort of get away with a lot more and um i guess it was and um yeah i think it yeah, I just I, I think of a lot of the work that I've done over the years. Monkey Dust is people have said to me, "Could you make that now?" And I think probably not. Right. Um, probably not. We could do some of it now, and I think some of the more controversial things. If Harry was still around, he's obviously sadly died, but um, mm. you know he was very robust at the time about defending what we were doing and saying that it was, you know, the editorial reasons for doing it and the comedic reasons for doing it. And it wasn't what we were doing wasn't gratuitous and it wasn't being disrespectful. It was it all he was very good at that sort of things. But I think even if he was around now, I think he he would probably. It's a slightly more slightly more censorious atmosphere i think at the minute we would probably be able to do less we try and we offer the same justifications but i think the goalposts have have definitely moved yeah i think that uh it's definitely true did the experience then of of co-creating monkey dust give you the impetus to go on then and say right i want to this is what i want to do now i want to go on and create more shows yeah so i guess going back to what we were saying earlier when i started i just wanted to carry on doing just starting around for a living which is what comedy writers essentially do um so i didn't have any uh set career choice i was just going to do everything that came my way um and see where it got me and at the end of the day the holy grail was still always to write a narrative piece um of some sort uh or a sitcom you know we're all back then we were all absolutely in awe of ricky and steve and the office and you know that was it was at that time and it you know was the most successful comedy show in the world and it was and so we were all thinking well rather than write knob jokes for a living um or write monkey dust which was sketches then you know i eventually want to do long form stuff um but it wasn't I, i didn't plot a course to it it was i mean the first narrative thing i wrote was a show on channel five called respectable which was about prostitutes which was um absolutely pilloried um by uh lots of the press um some for good reason some for not but that wasn't my thing that was harry came up with the idea with graham smith at channel five uh, and i was brought on board um as i have been a lot in my career as sort of it's not my thing but i was brought on board to sort of help with it or gag it up or um you know and there's that's a very 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 valid way of uh sort of being a comedy writer in this country um 
So, how, how did it affect you when you're receiving or reading those bad reviews of a show? You well, well, it was weird because Harry died uh, halfway through just before we started filming. So I took on the role of sort of producing this as well as, you know, I was originally the co-writer, then I was the writer and I brought on my friend Alan to help when Harry was sick. And then uh, I became the producer. So it, it's, so I'm proud of the show, by the way, I'm not distancing myself from it, but mm. I suddenly became, it suddenly became my show um, because Harry had died uh, mm. and I I was left and um, a lot of people liked it. It got some good reviews, but it got absolutely slated. The Sunday Times uh, said that I should take a... Sunday Times said Sean Pye should take a real bow for producing something this terrible, which was quite harsh. And then there was a review from a columnist in The Guardian, uh, which said it was the worst comedy writing they had seen in 30 years. Um and you, that came out just before my birthday, I remember. And the production uh, coordinator, who's um, very close to us all, printed that out, that review, and blew it up and wrapped all of my birthday presents in it. And she'd highlighted the bit about the worst comedy writing in 30 years. So it's, we dealt with it like that, basically. I mean, nobody ever likes to hear bad reviews. No. I mean, no nobody I mean, you're lying if you do if you're one of those people that go oh i don't care you know I, I need some bad reviews it shows that you know you're ruffling feathers i don't i don't think that's true i think um you just have to suck it up and you feel shitty about it and want to go around and shout in people's faces about why they're wrong but then over time you sort of think yeah well if they had a point <laughs> yeah um and and just try and learn from it i suppose i mean it's not the last terrible review i've got hope the the pendulum swung more towards good reviews i have to say recently but um yeah it's, it's so interesting now how showrunners seem to operate they they basically go on to their the fans message boards after every episode and see what they've um see what they've said about the, the episode and then they will write the next episode not necessarily 100 percent based on their feedback but they will take it into account for future future episodes yeah, I don't. I, I don't want to dismiss Twitter and social media, but it's a weird, it's a strange place to go for any sort of rational feedback. I suppose you're not talking about random Twitter; you're talking about specific message boards, presumably that are fans for those shows. Yeah, exactly. So, so people that post, I don't know, let's pick Walking Dead for example. Um, presumably, these are people who are invested in the show already. They're not necessarily sure. haters, so they're giving. So I think that's different. I think. Twitter, my friend Ben, who um, wrote Ghosts, told me a story when we were on set, which was that they um, they put out a press release saying that they were going to write Ghosts. They hadn't even written Ghosts at this stage, um, Ben and all of that team. So they, it, they just announced it. And about two seconds later, they saw someone put on Twitter, it's just a shit renter ghost. And he was like, <laughs> you haven't even written it yet. You <laughs> <laughs> haven't written it yet. And the, the, there's a special, I can't remember what it is, but there's something someone's come up with. It's the amount of time it takes for a, a, a show to start and for someone to say it's fucking shit on Twitter is under one second. It's yeah. like, this is rubbish. <laughs> it's like, but no, what you're saying is is not that. And um, yeah, I think taking on board, um, you know, I mean, we all hate 
notes even let alone criticism on on the internet or whatever we hate receiving notes from execs we hate receiving uh, any sort of but I think the older I've got, um, the more and the more confident you are about what you're doing, the ability to uh, accept criticism. I think you, you, well, in my case, hopefully you, you're more open to accepting criticism and you're more comfortable about knocking it back. You know, you're more comfortable yeah. about saying, well, you know, either that that is a good idea. Yeah. All right. I can take that on board or not, you know, losing sleep about someone who criticizes you because you can just think, well, you haven't understood what we're trying to do, so that's fine. You don't watch another episode. It's fine, you know. It's fine. It's yeah. uh, you know, it's not for you. That's fine. Um, but I have to say, you know, this is I've been doing this for twenty three years, and um, yeah, it's it's never, you know, it's still not easy to no. take criticism. Um, you know, I try not to look at Twitter. Other people look at Twitter, and they possibly filter out the bad ones and tell me the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good to have a filter. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so on um, the show, the increasingly poor decisions of of Todd Margaret, how did that come about? Because I know that was a that was on um, IFC, the US it, US channel. Um, it was on more for originally. That had a long gestation period. We did a pilot. So I got into it because um I again it's just the thing about being in telly is never waste a contact not I'm not saying that machiavellianly I'm just yeah. saying every opportunity that comes your way my experience is never think of it as um do I want to do this project or that project it's it's more people I know in the industry it's more people who will go on and become successful in the industry and if I so I would never um I would encourage anybody listening never to to waste a contact. So anyway, I was contacted to do this idea that sounded quite low key. Um, and it was uh, as part of a writing group. So I went along to it and met uh, Clelia, who was at the Clelia Mountford, who now runs Merman, who is at the sort of start of her producing career. Um, and it was a thing, I think we would work it up for radio. Um, and it didn't go anywhere. It was a nice idea, but it didn't go anywhere. But she knew me and from that and so david cross who you know from arrested development had come up with this idea but he wanted to set it he's a big angler file um and he wanted to set it in um london so he came over from new york um and he just wanted to meet some english uh british writers because he needed someone just to sort of guide him on sensibilities of you know you know the local custom so anyway mm. I she auditioned or got him to meet lots of people and by sheer chance I was the last one he met on like a Tuesday uh, and he was bored at that stage so he said should we go to the pub should we do it in the pub so I said yes and we got hammered um, and I got the job and I think it was just the timing that he associated talking to me with being drunk uh, or drinking at least um, and he associated everyone else with sort of sitting there and very dryly presenting their ideas <laughs> whereas I was just getting pissed and saying oh that's shit no we shouldn't do that that's crap because I was so again it's a sort of mixture of luck and uh, and and context but from there we did a pilot and um, it was part of a pilot season uh, and it didn't get picked up but Shane who was head of uh, Channel 4 comedy at the time never let it go and clearly never let it go and so a, a while later we did uh, 
the first series, um, which did very well and did very well in America. And that's when IFC in America picked it up. And then we did the second series. And then uh, a few years later, Netflix came along saying that it was one of their highest watch shows on Netflix. So could we do another series for them? It's sort of a series of nothing that is ever sort of planned or mapped out. It's just one thing leading to another, to another, to another. Um, so, yeah, just being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> what What was the experience like of, of making that show and then seeing it transcend over to the US? Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, David is a very, very funny man. I learned a lot from working with uh, David um, about uh just about doing things differently and about it's quite an odd show really it's um it's it's quite a high concept in terms of its characterization but in terms of its plotting um it was the first time i'd come across the idea of he he would put things in episode two and i'd be saying right and then we could resolve it at the end of episode two or maybe we should resolve it in episode three this plot and he's saying no no no, no. we resolve that in like episode five of series two and I was saying, but we haven't got a series two. And he'd be saying, I don't care. That's the natural arc of the story that it resolves in another series time. And to start working with somebody who was thinking outside the sort of limitations of, you know, you, you have an episode, then you have another episode. And, you know, I'd sort of been brought up on, I don't know, ever decreasing circles into the manor born where you would have a story of the week. So mm. for him to uh, just start throwing in things like that um, was good. And just that he's funny. He's just a very funny guy and, um, and he's a very good actor. And the fact that we attracted the the talent that we did because of his standing and his, because we had Will on Yeah, Will on it. Yeah. Such a strong uh, cast. Uh, it was incredible. And, Sharon was Sharon Horgan was uh, someone who came to us via um, sort of Clelia and my well my I'm not being blown down trumpet Clelia's contacts but I worked with Sharon Sharon obviously wrote on Monkey Dust so I knew Sharon we'd worked together first there um, and then you know and then it snowballed from there and we got um, uh, we got John Ham obviously. Um, came in for the second series uh and then jack came in for the you know so it had an amazing uh cast a lot of people wanted to do it so again it's just another one of those um stories where uh you know just the, the more work you do always looking back at my career i think everything that i did then was a building block for something else just because of the people you meet and um you know the the sort of friendships that you make because john obviously then was in young doctors with um daniel and again that wasn't my doing that was uh you know clearly i sort of persuaded him to do that which was great but it was just it's just all one not particularly um neat but it's all sort of one river flowing in one direction really and just little bits get added on as as you go along but todd margaret was great it was really good the way it went down in america we got to go to new york quite a lot um for various premieres and press junkets and things so that was all cool um and yeah i'm very proud of it i keep trying to find it i don't think it's on netflix at the minute but i think my son's 16 and i talking to uh david and uh clearly and people then um we've decided if ever a show was made for my son it's 
something with lots of swearing and people being silly (laughs) 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 and stupid misunderstandings uh then uh yeah so no i i'm very proud of that have you found then as as you've progressed in your career and you're getting shows away it becomes easier to get ideas through the door and to get shows made or is it still a constant struggle it's just that you're going to get the meetings rather than in the past you wouldn't have actually i just said no and that's not true i think i would find it easier to get a meeting with various people um than someone people listening to this who are starting out because I uh, am friends with them obviously and we've worked together so yeah I would find it easier to get a um, meeting with certainly people at production companies because you know Clelia at Merman or Peter at Zepatron or whatever are people I've worked with before so that you know they would obviously we go for in normal times we go for a drink and then at the sort of higher commissioning level i obviously have a very good um you know friendship with lots of the people there uh so i could definitely get my ideas you know i could i could introduce my ideas to them i think easier than you know some people who are trying for the first time whether they'll get on telly or not uh after that uh no it doesn't get easier it 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 really doesn't and um you know there's a lot of ideas we're having at the minute that are being knocked back for a variety of good re- i mean mainly co- i mean covid's just closed everything down like we started saying at the beginning there's a huge mm. backlog um but no it is it's difficult um and it doesn't get uh having things on before yeah i imagine it does make things easier to get meetings and it makes it easier to be taken you know people have seen what you've done before so they have a certain degree of confidence that you'd be able to do it again but it's certainly doesn't for me anyway hasn't turned on a magic tap of all i have to do is send in an idea and uh, suddenly it's on telly i can't remember who it was it was um what's his name david crane is it who did friends mm, yeah is it but i remember um I know a lot of people who worked on um, um, what was the thing he did with Stephen Mangan episodes, episodes, episodes. Yes, yeah, sorry, I just forgot the name. But I remember them telling me that he had terrible trouble getting that um, away. You know, he really had to get uh, all the normal stuff, getting talent involved, and all of this. And you just think, surely you get a pass having invented friends. <laughs> I mean, I know he invented Joey afterwards and, and that wasn't quite as successful, but you just think if I turn up at someone's office and say, uh, I'm the guy who invented friends, then you just think they're going to be receptive and they're going to yeah. think, well, let's give it. But apparently, I, you know, that, and that's just one, one thing I hear. I, you know, I, I don't think, I think it's far more to do with the fact that the older you get and the more your career progresses, you just know more people and just have that sort of access i don't think and as i say possibly people say well you know he did this and that was all right but uh no my failure rate at getting programs away is still very very high yeah i guess it's useful then to be having sort of other things going on i know you're also an actor as well so to have other different you know, areas or sources of income that kind of thing just to keep you going when the writing is slow must be um helpful obviously it's been challenging during this period of time 
Yeah, I don't do that much acting. I um, How did you get into uh, acting? Because obviously, you know, you're well known for playing Greg in the in Extras. Uh, um, I, how did it all come about? I did uh, I did stand up for a while, but I gave it up. Yeah. Because, uh, people were just better than me. I wasn't, I was all right, you know, going around. But my generation was uh, Frankie Boyle and Jimmy okay. Carr and uh, sort of Noel Fielding. We were all sort of, and Daniel Kitson, who isn't TV famous, but he's, you know, obviously. Sure. And how how were long were you gigging for? I gigged a bit in the 90s and then I gave it up to go and be a journalist. Then when I got back into telly, I was strongly encouraged uh, by Harry and people to do stand up again, just as a, as a way of just as having another outlet for trying to work out how to be funny. Okay. Um, and uh, I did it for about three years. I did it from about 2000 to 2003. Um, and that's, uh, but I gave it up because other people were just, better than me They're did you just... enjoy doing it when it went well i really enjoyed doing <laughs> yeah. it yeah um and but my demographic quickly transpired i was if i was in camden or ealing at some very nice uh room above a pub um or some other bits of london really sort of the sort of posher bits of london i was in my element and i was sort of okay and fine but anything challenging where Honestly, I couldn't deal with heckling. I just, right. I just became so you know. I'd be, I've been bottled off at, at the creek, and um, not, not bottled off. That's over dramatic. But I've been, you know, people started throwing things and booing. Um, and enough of those ratchet up, and you think I can't be fucked with this anymore. Especially when I look over and Jimmy, who's my mate, who we're gigging together, is suddenly just doing, you know, the comedy store and everything, and I'm thinking. I'm not going to catch him or Daniel or Frankie or so why don't I just concentrate on the writing basically but from that I knew Stephen from stand-up Stephen Merchant from stand-up and I knew Ricky from various things um and yeah he after the office whenever I saw <laughs> Ricky I'd normally be drunk in Soho uh, and he'd walk by and um because we knew each other obviously from the 11 o'clock show and we'd always shout things like one hit wonder, but you can't fucking do it again. You, the office. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. One fucking hit. Charlie fucking big potatoes. Go on, keep walking. And sometimes you come over for a drink. We'd laugh about it. Sometimes not. But then they wrote the character of Greg and he said, oh, they called me in for the audition. And he just pushed a bit of paper over the table. Uh, and he said, here's your character description. Here's who we want you to play. And it just said a smug cunt with a punchable face. And he just looked at me and he went, we're auditioning lots of people, but you're getting the part. You're getting the part because we've written it for you. So that's how I got the, the part. Love that. <laughs> pulling, oh, it's not a web thing, but anyway, pulling a sort of a smug, creepy face. Um, so that's how I got the, and I loved it. I loved, loved, loved doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's weird being an actor, I think. Um, there's a lot of sitting around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I loved it, and I loved working with uh, Ricky and Stephen, and um, the whole experience was uh, brilliant. We got to do the two series, and then we got to do the special at the end, which was um, just uh, great. But then acting after that, um, I, I haven't done a lot. I've cast myself in a few things, um, and I've had a few offers come my way, but um, 
I cast, well, I sort of cast myself in a young doctor's notebook we did with John Hamm and Daniel Radcliffe. And then at the rap party for the first series of Young Doctors, John was, uh, me and John were drinking and he said, I've got to, I won't do the accent, but he said, I've just got to say something to you, Sean. Of all the actors I've ever worked with, you are by far the fucking worst. <laughs> and he gave me a big bear hug. Uh, and he said, I'm just, just telling you, buddy, he's the nicest man in the world, John. He's so, and so it was all friendly and everything. He wasn't saying it to be horrible. Um, but then we got together to write the second series. And the second series, I mean, nobody watched it, so I doubt anyone knows what I'm talking about. But the second series starts with the death of my character, the funeral of my character, as a joke for, for John, basically. So saying, we took on board what you said at the rap party. And because I wrote it as well, and, and Mark and Alan, who wrote it with me, we got together and we went, it'd just make John laugh if he reads the script. And the first thing is that they've killed him. <laughs> so I cast myself out of that, but I haven't done a lot of acting really. My main income is um is is writing. Writing, really, yeah. You know, but what I what I have done, which is not unusual, but it's I've managed to straddle both both makes sense there's only two but two aspects of comedy writing yeah which is writing uh day-to-day writing so Mm. day job writing and narrative writing um and somehow i've managed to keep both of those going whereas um a lot of people will specialize in one i mean lots of other people do it i'm not saying i'm amazing um but a day job writing being panel shows yeah, so writing yeah. on Havaga News for you or on um, uh, Frankie Boyle's uh, New World Order show I've been doing or League of Their Own, I do some day writing on. Um, but at the same time, obviously, we carried on with There She Goes and things. Um, but a lot of people would do one or the other, really. Um, and, I mean, it would be great if I could make my whole living off narrative writing um because i think it's i don't know ultimately it's more rewarding when it goes well because it's something that you've done and it's something that belongs to you really and you're saying something about you know the things that you want to talk about um but day writing is brilliant as well because you get to sit with your mates and fuck around all day and yeah. at the end of the day you get paid some money irrespective of uh you know you know you don't get notes on it you don't get you know you get portion of money when we get a good second draft you just go in there you do your day you get some money as i said you shit about with your mates all day and the other great thing about the day writing i would say is um when it's done it's done so um you know you write have i got news for you and you write it on wednesday and it's recorded on thursday and it goes out on friday and if it's good, people say it's good. And if it's shit, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's shit, um, tired old fucking show, let's get rid of it. But it doesn't matter because you've mm. still been paid and it's gone. It's, you know, whereas with the narrative, you know, it's a very long process and you're, you know, you're, you're sort of from the beginning of it to the end of it, you, you've got things to worry about and you've got, whereas the day writing, it's great. You just turn up, do it, go home, goes out, take praise if it's good feel a bit pissed off it's bad <laughs> but you know yeah. you wake up the day and it starts again perfect 
Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. Do you find that writing on panel shows sharpens your skills for which you can then apply to narrative writing? Yes, I do. I think the good narrative writing, I don't think is, uh, well, it depends what it is. I was about to say, shouldn't be based on jokes. I've written lots of narrative things. Todd Margaret would be one where actually, you know, you're going through and you're putting jokes in. Um, was it, it was originally called the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret. It, it, it is called the increasingly yeah. But it's shortened to, yeah. I just shorten it to yeah, Todd Martin because yeah. um, uh, I'm lazy. Um, <laughs> but I think it does hone your skills. I'd encourage anyone to, uh, um, even if they want to write narrative, to try some form of joke writing um, uh, process on whatever it is. You know, there's lots of things. There's good things on the radio um, and there's good things uh on telly but they're probably a little bit harder to get into but i think i definitely the best education i had i think was being in those rooms and they were quite hardcore brutal rooms as i said yeah um, early in my career and just seeing how quick some of the other people were and just learning off that because some of the people in those rooms were forget the the atmosphere just some of the speed of thought that they had and the ideas and the ability to you know go left field or to suddenly see a connection over there that just hadn't occurred to you on a is breathtaking um and it was uh it, it was just a really good education and i think being in those rooms now with some of those people um you know and they're they're you know they're really nice dreams to be in these days um and just working with other people just on that um level i think is a really really good education and just writing rooms that maybe even aren't joke writing rooms so i work with mark boutros and neil webster who um i think we may have mentioned uh, in a ideas room for romash's reluctant landlord and again that was uh that was just go in come out get paid you know it's just an ideas thing but it was a really really good experience uh for me to be in there just because of the quality of the other people who were in there and the ideas that they were coming up with and you know you can go mad and you can go down alice's um alice in wonderland's rabbit hole if you just sit on your own all the time yeah just in your own little world and just to be able to um work with other i've done a lot of writing rooms on narrative uh projects a lot of them never made it to telly a lot of them were pilots um but just talking to other people and and they're fun they should be fun anyway Mm. um is uh is is really good i mean most of my narrative stuff has been collaborative um in fact all of it has really um so i've never actually sat in a room on my own uh completely and just written stuff it's always been with other people just because it's a bit more fun mm. um yeah. yeah until you until you start arguing and then it's not 
Yeah. Well, talk, talking of that, that leads me on to the next question then. What was it like writing or co-writing There She Goes with, you, with your wife, Sarah? Uh, Had you was... written together before? No. Right. Um, I went to her with the... I said, should we do this? Because it's about our daughter who's uh, got a chromosomal disorder and she's extremely learning disabled. So we thought we're putting ourselves really out there with this and um, we're going to make it a comedy drama because Joey, my daughter, is, um, you know, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's sad. Anyway, it's it's going to be very personal. Um, so she said, we'll write an episode and we'll see what I'll see what I think of it. So I wrote a pilot episode on my own and she read it and in it the my character who's played by David Tennant is um sort of a put upon hero he's got this poor daughter and he's married to this woman who doesn't understand him and that's why he has to drink all the time and he's very much the hero of the piece and she just read it and she just went no fucking way no fucking way are we making this this isn't about you so she ripped it up and she said tell you what well why don't we do this together so we started writing together um from that point and it was um it was good it was it's good sarah's not a comedy writer sarah is a psychologist um but to get the input obviously she's my wife for 25 years so obviously i know her. but to get the input of someone who wasn't a comedy writer and wasn't necessarily going for the same sort of comedy angles and gags that I would have naturally veered towards, I think was really, really good to sort of get that input. And I, hopefully that comes across in the program. Um, was writing but, a cathartic experience. Yeah. It, yeah, it was. Cause yeah. it, the, the, the program has two timelines and one's modern timeline, which is sort of, the hilarious capers that we get up to with my daughter and then the early timeline is when we found out that joey was um had severe disability mm. and um it's obviously darker much 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 darker and um the, the working out that early timeline actually made us think about lots of things that we hadn't ever thought about before because we just blocked them out you just you know who wants to remember bad things why don't you just so we forced ourselves to remember bad things. And I think if we hadn't done it via that process, then, um, you know, we may never have got around to talking about those things uh, and working them out in our own heads. So cathartic and therapy and people have said lots of things about it, but but it was good. I mean, I wouldn't, I've said before that I wouldn't recommend anybody having difficult period in their lives to solve it by writing a, bbc sitcom because that's mm. quite a lot of effort to go to it might just be better to have a chat um but uh it works jess hines said the um on the last day of filming the first series um there's a, a big scene where um her, her character sarah's character basically delivers this very heartfelt speech um and my character david Tennant sort of is overcome with remorse and it's just sort of trying to say sorry to her for all the terrible things she's done. She just walked up to me at the end of filming and she went, you basically just spent the last two years writing the most elaborate uh, apology letter to your wife. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you've got all of us here to act it out and film it. <laughs> she said, couldn't you have just written her a note or something? Which made me laugh. Um, is, jo yeah, is Joey a fan of the show? Yeah, loves it. Loves yeah. it. Well, look, she's got a mental age of, she's 14, but she's got a mental age of sort of 12 months. So, 
um she can't express it but what she does love is uh, when it's on the computer she loves watching her own bit so miley who plays joey um she loves watching miley and because miley does stuff in the show obviously that joey does so you know smashing things and um you know, you know being obsessed by certain things like exes and things like that yeah so those bits it's like she's suddenly confused because not confused she's suddenly enthralled because she's watching sort of reality and she recognizes that it's reality so she keeps getting my finger and making me drag it back and play those things over and over again and then the scenes that she's not in she doesn't give a fuck about because they're boring um but she is uh she uh yes I, i i would say she is as much as she can be she is a fan but there she goes is the most unusual writing experience I've ever been through and ever will go through, obviously. Imagine. It's so personal. Um, and it was the same for, it's the weirdest show I've ever made because of the very personal nature of it. You know, it created a, a very, very close knit uh, sort of bond between especially all the producers and the exec producers, but it filtered down, I think through, through the cast and the crew as well. I mean, it was um, it, it it was a weird, not weird. It was a lovely atmosphere to work in. Um, it was were very you, different. Were you ever worried about putting yourself out there in such a personal way? Yeah, we were very worried, um, very very worried. Uh, but the main thing we were worried about was how the parents of similar children would react to the show. Mm. Um, that was. Uh, that's what kept us up at night it was like if they suddenly start saying that we're being exploitative or we're we've got it wrong or how dare we so we we screened it for a lot of uh, the charities that represent um children with severe learning disability like unique and charities like that scope and charities like that and um they uniformly adore the show and publicized it and told all their members to watch it. And since then we I've lost track of how many people have been in touch via whatever to say my daughter or my granddaughter or my sister or whatever um, is similar to this, uh, to the child portrayed in this. And it's like watching my own um, life on screen and it's just to finally see our lives represented on screen. So there was an amazing feeling. It was, it was, uh, it, it was relief rather than um, any sort of, well, it was there was joy, but it's more relief and just because if we'd let down, I mean, there are community really. I mean, we're part of that community, and we've chosen sure. to we've chosen to sort of dramatize and publicize that. And if we got it wrong, I mean, it would have been awful. Um, but no, the number of I mean, honestly, it's like it's two hundred or something people have got in touch with us. Families have got in touch with us, and no, I hear that there is. Talking about Twitter, as we were earlier on, I don't look at Twitter, but people have looked at Twitter and they say it's a similar number of people saying the same thing with virtually no sort of bad feedback coming back. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a very strange, very, very different show to make from all the other shows I've made. I can imagine. Was it quite a sad feeling when you rapped on it? Yes. I mean, there's a possibility that we will do more, but... Um, uh, we don't know we yeah we would be willing to but um obviously as i said the backlog exists and sure, um, sure. you know the bbc uh have been so so supportive of us but we are in 
COVID and, you know, I, of course. this is what I meant earlier on when I was talking, you know, the ability of the actors, so Jessica and David and people, we don't know when we might be able or if we'll be able to, to do any more, but wrapping yeah. on the set of the series, we knew there was a chance that that would be as much as we wanted to do. And it was very, uh, it was very, yeah, it was, it, it, it was sad, but nice. Cause as I say, it was, uh, such a amazing atmosphere on set that um you know it was it, it was very different to every other show i've done that's all i can say mm. really so outside of your career and work what have you traditionally done obviously i know this last year has been very different but what have you done to kind of relax and unwind and take your mind off all, all things work related i was thinking about this because i know that this uh is about balance and i think the first thing i would say is that i love my job I absolutely okay. love. So it's like your job. work is your play. My work is my play to a certain degree, but I don't, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the narrative writing um, and I enjoy going into work and doing the day writing. And I think that for me, I've landed in the luckiest job I could ever possibly land in because I can't see another job that I would do that I would just enjoy doing as much as comedy writing, which I hope is something that people listening to this want to hear because it's something worth pursuing, you know, you, to ask around for a living basically um, and get paid enough to sort of get by and um, it's great. So I love working. So this pandemic is doing my head in slightly. Uh, I, so in terms of my my work is my play to a certain degree because the alternative is I don't get a great deal of time for play really because of my daughter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, my my Sarah works. She's a clinical psychologist. Um, so um, we have got help in normal times. We haven't got help at the minute uh, and haven't had it for a while. Um, so actually, our home life. Um, is i mean millions of people have got children obviously but joey is uh quite demanding joey's mm. taken up a lot of our time so there isn't a huge amount of uh play time as it were um to uh to, to fill really yeah uh, so really we i i would say what time is left we're normally so tired because of joey that it's normally taken up just watching television um which is probably not the rock and roll but i mean i would say my balance in the past before joey became as difficult as um she can be is um we would normally finish work and then we would carry on um you know going to pubs and things uh, and that was a huge part of certainly 15 years ago um 10 years ago maybe that was a huge part of um, of what we did and uh, work life and social life often blended into to one really. Mm. Um, but over the last no, last decade, that's got less and less and less. So um, I'm afraid to say my uh, my big culminating answer is that I'm very boring. <laughs> <laughs> I used to play a lot of pool. I was very good at pool. Yeah, American pool. I used to play pool all the time with my. Back in, we go back over 10 years ago, we used okay. to, uh, 
we used to play a huge amount of because uh, obviously I made a film about snooker. So me and uh, a group of people used to spend hours and hours in a horrible. People may know it, shitty um, pool hall in Shepherd's Bushes W12 Centre called Riley's. Uh, yeah. And yeah, we became fixtures in there. We were like, uh, we were like known people in there and we would play hours and hours of pool into the evening getting drunk. So that was how I used to relax. But Riley's has closed down. So <laughs> it had a sticky floor, had a very sticky floor. It was uh, one of those places. <laughs> it was really classy. And one of the tables had the, a lot of them were just like normal bays, but one of them had uh, a picture of a woman with very large breasts um, covered up in a, in a bra, but she was holding two big jugs of beer and you could choose to play on that table if you want. So it was, uh, it was, pro- it was like the crucible. It was like uh, classy. Um <laughs> so we used to do that but honestly i i i would add that i i mean i like going on holiday because i like taking my kids on holiday and it's great mm-hmm. but i have been criticized so often for taking my laptop on holiday and uh writing while i'm on holiday um right. i many many times uh i will you know i will work on holiday that's the and that's not because i don't want to spend time with everybody else but it's because you have deadlines and things and they're not necessarily um fitting in with with you know going away at half terms and stuff so um yeah yeah, there's there's many a time where i'll be found in the you know the bar of a hotel somewhere in nice in europe um basically writing another pilot another pilot that's deemed a failure (laughs) Of which there are many. (laughs) And they were all good ideas, Steve. (laughs) The next one. It's the next one. Next one. Yeah. They were all brilliant. I was gonna say you I guess because you had the 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 day job, or you call it, you know, the panel the panel show work, there wasn't ever a, a, a need for you to think about then other sources of income because you had that coming in. Because otherwise it's bloody hard, isn't it? If you're doing the narrative stuff and you're constant, if you're relying on that, then that's a challenging way to earn a full-time income unless you are writing a, a huge show. Yeah, I would say, right, right. First of all, when I, I kept up the journalism a bit for quite a long time after I started. Okay. So yeah. I was doing the 11 o'clock show, but that was only three days a week. Um, and we were getting paid. We weren't getting paid. We, you know, we were newbies. I can't remember what we were getting paid, but it was like 50 quid or something a day, which um, maybe it was more than that. Um, and then I kept that up until it no longer made financial sense because by doing the, um, I had enough work that by doing the other work, actually, it was taking away from, so that was quite a financial decision. Um, but I would write pieces for the for the magazines that I used to work for, and you know, mm. I didn't, you know, it was all right. It's just boring compared to asking around and being a comedy writer, writing about boring things. Um, so I did keep those jobs going. Um, I would say till about because I was doing the stand up as well, um, which wasn't paying anything. Um, but I reckon I probably kept all of that going for about three years okay. um, until I felt confident that I was actually earning enough uh just from the day-to-day stuff that and then then once you start doing that um it sort of frees up time to think about other things i mean the balance i would say in in recent years for me is about the balance between doing day-to-day things and doing narrative things 
because narrative things are um, a, a, a risk because unless, as you say, you're on a big show or you've got a big commission, sometimes not my own idea. So Reductive Landlord is one thing. That was a really good thing to come along because, you know, it's Jane Bell, who's the producer, is brilliant, had sorted it all out and she just wanted me to write a couple of episodes. So that's great. That's that I can just do that. But to take time away from doing sort of panel showy things or you know chat showy things uh to work on new ideas is a risk because most new ideas don't go anywhere and you can spend a long time uh working up uh a treatment and then you know thinking i'll take a punt why i'll just send them a script see you know see if i can get interested there and, you know you've suddenly lost the equivalent of uh a month or six weeks or something working on that and it doesn't come to anything financially so i would say the balance for me is probably more about how much of this work do i want to do compared to taking a punt with um narrative and i should probably do more narrative because you know uh that's sort of more fulfilling in the end but to to make a living writing narrative is a very alone i would say is probably a very precarious existence and you probably need to have something else going on especially if you're starting out i mean you need to be sam and jesse i imagine who are probably comfortable with um the amount of commissions they're going to get or you know some other great brilliant writers and you know like simon blackwell and people who you know have a level of um security but um I, I think if 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 you don't have the day stuff and you are writing narrative, then um, it yeah it can be a bit scary. Until that's why it's always good to just clear one hurdle at a time, as I always think, rather than think about the end game. Just if you can get paid for a treatment and then get paid for a pilot script, and then just take it one step at a time and know that at each any one of those stages you can fall down. And I have many, many, many times fallen down at one of those stages. But if you can just get a bit of encouragement, financial encouragement along the way, um it sort of keeps keeps you going as it were. Yeah, that's a nice in America you can make a whole very, very lucrative career by never getting anything on telly. I mean there's people who, you know, are very, very rich who never ever got anything away. But that's America, uh, and I don't think you can in this country to the to the same extent. Um, Did you ever have aspirations to go over and do it there? Well, um, I've been to America a few times to work um, with mainly with uh, Sasha, who I know from uh, the Eleven O'clock Show. So I've been over and worked on little bits on some of uh, his films that he did um little bits not to the level of his main writers who are brilliant um but uh i like america a a huge amount and i like working in america and when i was over there a few years ago i went to saturday night live not to write on it but just to sort of sample it because some of the writers i was with were friends and it just seemed quite whatever you think of saturday night live it seemed like a really exciting place to go we went to the daily show as well john oliver got us sort of into the daily show to look around and it was again it was there's a real uh energy really there i'm probably too old now but i'd love to have made it over there when i was younger um but it's also a big place also you know it's 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 huge it's like it's 
Britain, but you know, times God knows how much. So, you know, it's probably easy, very easy to get lost over there. Whereas, um, you know, I think I've probably done quite well in this country, but in America, I've just been another, another, another Brit who uh, mm. came and went. Um, but no, it's uh, it is it is it's nice being in America. Everything seems much. I mean, they're slightly shallower, but everything just seems much bigger and glossy. Yeah, glossier, and you get um, what's it called? Craft services. The catering is amazing. Oh is, yeah, I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, everybody listening to this knows the importance of uh, catering and lunch to <laughs> the comedy writers. I'm sure. Holy Grail. <laughs> myself, uh, the Holy Grail is. Uh, is uh, the Holy Grail is going to work at somewhere like Zeppotron and Shepherd's Bush and the runner coming in and saying, what do you want for lunch? Want, yeah. like, what is there? And the runner saying, well, Westfield, you can have anything in Westfield. And it's like, we finally arrived. This is what we got into the game for. This is, this is, I can now, this is off the bucket list now. Are you telling yeah, me that I can go to, what, Nando's? What? I can go to Wagamama's? What, literally anything? And they're like, anything. This is the next, it's the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there any are there any books that you've read over the year that have had a, a big impact on you? It doesn't have to be career related. Are there any, any that stand out to you? Any books? Now, I never went down the route of reading any of the textbooks, um, but other people have, and I think they're very useful for them. Um, any books that I've read? Do you just mean like generally? Generally, yeah. It could be, it could be any, any that stand out to you that have had some kind of impact or inspired you in some way in your life. Big question, Steve. Big question. Um, <laughs> I should have thought I know, I, you. When, I, when I was younger, I, I, I remember reading Catch-22 and thinking it was the funniest book I'd ever read. Um, okay. But ask me to recall a single bit of Catch. I just remember it being quite instrumental in... Uh, forming what i thought you how funny a book could be um i haven't reread it and i didn't watch the film um but that that sort of stands out i guess um i don't know in terms of funny books that inspired me um i don't know what a carver i suppose I, I seem to remember the problem i've got is that i just don't read enough these days um yeah and it's a terrible thing to admit and i don't feel proud of it at all i'm in lockdown i'm desperately trying to um desperately trying to start reading again um it's just hard uh, when there's so many good things to watch that's the problem now the problem is given a choice between reading something or watching something it's much easier to watch things so um yeah i've i just read richard osman's books i think it's illegal not to I think uh, I think by law everyone has to own it and read it, uh, which okay. is why he sold so many. But that's very good. I'll recommend that. If, okay. Uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's changed my life, but uh, it's certainly worth a read. But no, it's um, it's just hard to get away from the draw of Netflix. I mean, what are you uh, watching at the moment? Well, look, I did all of the serial killer ones because yeah. all comedy writers are obsessed. So I did the Night Stalker and I did uh, the um, one about. Peter Sutcliffe um, did the serpent, um, which was all right. Yeah, um, we are. I <laughs> for a joke that turned out to be brilliant because I've seen it before. But Sarah and Frank, my son, hadn't. It was so depressing the other day after watching the news, and it was just really everyone was just down. So I suggested we watch Chernobyl, which cheered everyone up. <laughs> Watching Chernobyl with people's melting faces cheered. I don't know. It just cheered us up. So we watched that. Uh, Bridgerton, Queens. I've just done all the normal ones, basically. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah. we were current we're currently working our way through Shit's Creek because I was told that you know it's the it's the comedy du jour at the minute in yeah. uh, America and I was assured by people not to give up which I'm glad I didn't because I sat through two pretty shit seasons I have to say um, before it started to get quite funny and it takes a while to get going yeah it does I mean I quite like the, the characters are good and everything but it just seemed to lack um it seemed to lack some bite I don't know if they've got new writers in or or whether they've just readjusted what they're doing but it seems to have it seems to have some real good one-liners uh in whereas before it I, I wasn't really sure what it was uh so we've got that on the go um Bedfordshire Pembrokeshire murders we haven't watched but that's another murders to watch um yeah, it's just a lot of murder and working through uh, working through various various things. If you've got any recommendations, I always ask. My list of recommendations is about the it goes from floor to ceiling in this room with people saying you've got to watch the dark or whatever it is. But there's just so much to watch. There's so much. I'm I only I try and do one at a time. Otherwise, I get overwhelmed. So I'm just doing Shit's Creek at the moment, and then yeah, yeah I'm pretty. I'm I'm not that great uh at completing netflix it depresses me slightly because not it doesn't really depress me but you watch uh you look at amazon and um uh apple tv and you look at netflix obviously and sky and all that and you just think there are so many outlets for television and yet i still can't get some of these projects away (laughs) (laughs) it's like we're literally never making more television than we've ever made and my last three have just failed to 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 have liftoff, and it's like they were good. They're good ideas. Why aren't you buying this? And it's just how how long does it affect you for? When you get a no, do you dust yourself off and just move on straight away, or do you take a little bit of time to mourn for the project? The hardest thing over the years has been um, actually getting the no. It's the the length of time between submitting an idea yeah. and finally being told no is just does your head in and it, it reaches the point where you start thinking i'd rather somebody just said no so i can just move on yeah and as a time a couple of years ago where somebody phoned me up uh can't remember who it was but somebody phoned me up and they said i've got really bad news this project that i'm afraid um we, we're going to pass on it i'm afraid but good luck and and i honestly couldn't remember submitting it it had been about <laughs> It had been about three years before, and I'd obviously written a treatment and sent it to somebody somewhere, and they finally got around to looking at it, and it was very nice of them to phone me up, but I was like, I had to pretend. It was like, oh, no, that's terrible. Oh, God. <laughs> but I couldn't remember submitting it. So actually getting the, a, a no is, in a way, better than just yeah. living in limbo. But it affects you for a while because it's like – it depends how far down the line you've gone, really. It's mm. – um, you know, it's just depressing. I wrote our latest idea that got knocked back. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but it's set in the past. And we've just got this note back saying nobody wants anything historical. And you're like, what? Well, Bridgerton was historical. And they say, oh, it wasn't really historical, though, was it? It was set in the past, but it's sort of contemporary. And it's got. And you're like, how can you have a rule that you're not allowed anything historical? Apparently, young people don't watch historical things. And Bridgerton broke all the records. So I don't know what's going on. It's. Oh. It, it's looking for it's looking for some sort of rationale or reason and just say no. Yeah. But to say no. And so at the end you just you know, and it's when you get the the rejections that I'm sure people listening to this will <clears throat> be well aware of. It's the um we've already got something like that. And it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean you've already got something like that? What do you actually mean? You mean that it's got a man and a woman in the lead or something? <laughs> 
that's the one that, that gets to me. It's like I almost it just rankles you and you say, well, why don't you send me the treatment that's a bit like the one that we're submitting and I'll tell you whether it's like mine or not. Yeah. And also, you might have something that's like mine, but mine might be better. So <laughs> all of these frustrations, I'm sure you are all well aware of. Yeah. Yeah, it's challenging. It is challenging. Um, I go for all kinds of periods. Like At the moment, I've been looking into all kinds of different different things to do to take up to to take up the time to keep myself occupied i've been looking into stuff like drop shipping you know about drop shipping you heard about this no, it's the currently internet phenomenon where you can set up an internet store but you don't have to buy any stock you put it on there and then as soon as someone orders it you basically then buy it from the place and then you send it to the seller i mean i'm not going to do it there's no way i'm going to do it. i'm just distract just just even researching it is distracting myself from in the inevitable no's that are going to come my way yeah yeah i mean writing a book is the other one that everyone you should write a book you should write a book it's like, yeah that's a lot of effort it's a lot, a lot of, effort, of effort isn't it and also just to be on your own for that long period of time be on your own for that um, my friend is uh, i've got a couple of friends who've written books and um they it's just an alien mindset to someone who's worked in with all the stuff about ages to get known everything if you want to write a book and you're a first-time novelist then um they just say we'll write it and then we'll have a read that's they don't say what's it about and they say oh that's good here's some money here's a little advance go and write it they just say we'll write it and then we'll read it so the idea of spending two years writing a book a book it's so long yeah and then submitting it and having somebody go mm, it's like oh, you've got to really want to tell that story <laughs> sorry we've got one like that <laughs> we've got yeah yeah we've got one a bit like that well you should have said that at the beginning. Have two years ago yeah the idea of that amount of commitment yeah I, you know we all think about you know learning an instrument or um yeah. especially know, during lockdown very, it's yeah. not going very well to be um i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you a final question but i feel like you've kind of answered it already but i'm still gonna ask it anyway because it's the final question i i asked to wrap up go for it uh, the conversation is uh, what what does the idea of balance mean to you or not sean the idea of balance, I think, well, there's a work-work balance and a work-life balance. And as I was saying, the work-work balance is making sure that um, the job that I love doing, I'm doing to the most, the optimum amount of fun in terms of uh, financial security, enjoyment, um, you know, sort of affirmation. Um, and so getting the balance between, as I said, writing my own stuff or doing narrative date stuff is is probably what I think most about in terms of work life um you know what I worry like all because I'm 49 um I'm a dinosaur and the world belongs to younger writers and that's kind of how it should be um that I worry about um how long I get to stay on the this train for um and we all do and we all think well there comes a point you know who's who's coming up with a new show and thinking we've got to get some 50 year old men to write on it um or alternatively you know in narrative you think well you're only as good as the project you've just sold the, the one you've just done you know the next one may come along in a few years the next one may never come along you know the world may you know brilliant writers are coming through all the time you know the, the, have you had your moment um so in terms of balance 
I think maybe my answer is it's a balance between now and the future. And do I just try and do as much as I possibly can now? Because there may come a time where um, I have to, you know, Sarah's a clinical psychologist. She doesn't, she has a good job. Will there come a time where I have to take a step back and I have to, you know, take the absolute lead role in looking after my daughter or I have to switch and I have to start doing something that um, isn't this brilliant job that I've had for so many years um, because that's the way of the world. And, you know, you start thinking, well, is it that I have to do as much as I possibly can now because in five years' time, I might be the guy who is sitting behind a desk, not working in the jobs that I used to do. Hopefully, it would be something in television, but it might be that I'm the guy who's, you know, doing the, the development stuff, not to diminish people that do development, but, you know, you might be having a different role. You might mm. be you might be being asked, you know, your experience might be better used um, reading other people's scripts, you know, up and coming writers scripts and trying to help them, you know, with whatever stuff, which would be very interesting to do. And it, I, I would, of course, jump at the chance to to do that, um, but only if I wasn't doing my own stuff. Yeah. So I think that's my answer. My answer is okay. my balance is not really in the now. My balance is trying to think how many more years I can carry on doing this for um, at the level that I'm doing it. And um, does that mean just doing everything I can at the minute and starting to think about an exit strategy really? Yeah. Uh, Which is um, a depressing note for me to end on, but uh, if you have young, as I'm sure you do aspiring writers, they'd be very pleased to know that, somebody else might get to work on these fucking panel shows. <laughs> and I see the same old names at the end. I think surely these people are going to die soon. <laughs> one day, come on. One day. Or surely we could get rid of this panel show we can come up with a better one and we can work on it rather than these fucking names that scroll at the end of all these tired old man dad jokes that they've been doing. But until that happens, I shall be writing the dad jokes. Brilliant. Um, Sean, thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Where can people keep up with what you're you're up to project wise? Uh I don't really twit Twitter or anything. So um uh um uh I I guess my hopefully if it's good enough and I'm proud of it enough, it, my name will be in the paper somewhere alongside a show to watch. Okay. Um but uh thank you very much. It's really been great. It's been lots of fun. Perfect. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 